because it's eating that and whenever you are actually eating with friends and bros have a lot of opiates that is released in your body that have antidepressant property Welcome to the Why in Psychiatry. Hi, this is Dr. Miles, CEO Fellow, where we delve into the intricate nuances of psychiatric topics. My name is Dr. Chandwara, attending psychiatrist. I did my residency from University of Connecticut, and then I did my fellowship from Georgetown University in consultation and liaison. Each episode features interview-style discussions that explore the intersection of the mind, medicine, and the human experience. Together, we'll uncover the hidden why and the groundbreaking discovery shaping the psychiatric landscape. So grab a seat, a warm beverage, tune in, and let's embark on this journey to unlock the mysteries of the human psyche. Only on The Why in Psychiatry. Welcome back to The Why in Psychiatry. This is your host, Dr. Mario C.F. Bello. I go by Miracle, and here with me is Dr. Andrade. Say hi, bro. Hi, bro. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Today, we're going to be continuing on that algorithm of depression. Two episodes ago, we talked about why to treat depression, how to diagnose depression, and the first step. Last episode, we talked about other factors you need to optimize besides medication, including psychotherapy, sleep, making sure there's no other confounding diagnosis and comorbidities. And today, we're going to talk about what I know guys came for the medication part, right? What medication to use, why to use those medications. What steps to pick? So if I'm going to pick an SSR, which one should I pick? So let's jump into SSRIs, right? So how do we select our SSRIs? So SSRIs, they basically work the same way, except that is small differences between them, right? So I don't want people to consider all SSRIs are the same. Let's go stepwise. So a few things that I look for when I'm using an SSRI, like I've ruled out bipolar disorder in a patient. I've ruled out the underlying medical conditions that is causing depression. I've ruled out substance use and all the other factors which might precipitate depression. So this particular patient has a family history of depression and just had an acute episode of depression, which is causing functional impairment. First, I look at the side effect profile. As Miracle mentioned, what is the side effect of the medication? Some side effects, you can actually use it for your benefits, for the patient's benefit. And some side effects... You know that the patient will not be able to tolerate and you need to avoid it. Second thing is I need to know the steady state. How long does it take for the medication to reach a steady state? Because that will tell, that is about approximately five half-life. That typically will tell you when do you increase the dose of the medication. So I like medications which has a steady state of one week because then I can increase the dose every week. Rather than a medication which has a steady state of one month, which you have to wait for four weeks before you increase the dosage. Because if a medication has a steady state of four weeks and you increase it every one week, then what is going to happen is that the fourth week, when it reaches steady state, you see the side effects because it has accumulated, right? So it's very important to know the steady state. And then what's this cardiac effect? How safe it is on the heart? Because now we are one of the medications that the FDA basically said, hey, you need to watch for QTC prolongation. And then when do you dose them? Morning or evening? Because a lot of times, a medication that is dosed in the evening, you dose in the morning, It'll cause a lot of fatigue and sedation. And the patient basically comes and tells you, Doc, I am tired the entire day. So you're not helping the patient at all. You're causing more functional impairment. So it's very important to know when you're going to dose it. And then the drug interaction, right? Young patient, 20, 25 years old, is not on too many medications. So you don't have to worry. But patients over the age of 40, you start accumulating 
different medical conditions. You start accumulating medications itself. So you're on a long list of medications. So you need to know the drug-drug interaction. So what are the factors I take into consideration when I'm picking my antidepressant? So it, it sounds like you're keeping track of side effects. And it sounds like sometimes side effects might be wanted depending on the patient. I would guess like sleep, sleeping or eating. And so you also want to keep track of half-life of the medication, other comorbidities, and then effects like cardiovascular effects. Let's get deep into it. So what symptoms would make you pick something? So what's, what symptoms make you pick settling over fluoxetine? So let's delve into it. So let's talk about citalopram. I'm not going to use any brand name because we are not funded by anybody. Right? Sadly. Yeah, we are Four little bros, three bros, four bros here actually barely surviving. And episodes just for the education purpose. And we love doing this, right? So citalopram has an antihistaminic property. So it's pretty good choice in patients who have insomnia. Patients who are not eating well because antihistaminic medications can increase your appetite. So just make sure citalopram is dosed in the bedtime and not in the morning. Antidepressants always tell the patients to eat when they take antidepressants, right? Because... The 5-HT3 receptors, which are present in your gut, when you stimulate it, can cause nausea and vomiting. So when you eat with food, it can decrease the nausea and vomiting. A patient taught me, he said, Doc, I took my medication, I ate a little bit, took my medication, and then finished the meal. Mm -hmm. That was the best advice a patient ever gave me. And I've been telling this to every patient, and the nausea has helped. So you take it in between your meal? Yes, like a sandwich. Eat a little bit of your breakfast, take the medication, completely. Eat a little bit of your dinner, take the medication, finish your dinner. So I take that patient experience and let the other patients know, but I give the credit to that particular patient. This okay. is not something that I came up with. We learn every day. And then so, citalopram, bet, wait, did. Steady state of citalopram was just a week. So wait, you can increase the dose every week. But just be careful. Don't go above 40 milligram because of the risk of QTC. But if you want to use a higher dose, suppose a patient has obsessive compulsive disorder, get an EKG, increase the dose, and do a follow-up EKG just to make sure that the QTC is not prolonged. This is not going to happen in every patient. So you should not deprive a patient of the benefit of the medication just because you're worried that there is a QTC risk. Take the precaution that you need to take, monitor the patient, and use it. So the problem is that when FDA came up with this, patients who are on 60 milligram citalopram or 80 milligram citalopram, physicians got scared and they decreased the dose. And these patients decompensated, though they didn't have any QTC problem. So you have to be careful. You should take it actually all these advice with a grain of salt. Every patient is different, right? For example, a cardiologist will tell you, don't treat the EKG, treat the patient. Same thing here. Look at the clinical symptoms. Be cautious. Don't just blindly prescribe it. Sounds like Thalopram is a good medication. Just have to watch for that QGC prolongation when you go out both body. Dose at night because of the antihistaminergic properties that can make people sleepy. Is there any reason why I should pick citalopram? If I have someone that might miss a medication, I'll pick fluoxetine because that has a very long half-life. It's one niche area that citalopram is like amazing. At a patient that citalopram would be wonderful for. So citalopram can actually be used in patients with liver disease who have depression. That's one condition that you can use it. You can use citalopram in patients who have severe insomnia. It's also a pretty good medication to pick. So especially in these two conditions, you can pick citalopram. And one more addition is that in geriatric patients, dosage more than 20 milligram, just get an EKG before you actually go up on the dosage. So if the patient has liver disease, go with citalopram. Now, suppose that you are pretty busy in your practice. You don't have time to open up your iPhone and look for drug interaction. Citalopram is a great medication because it doesn't have much of 
cytochrome P450 interaction. It's a very mild 26 inhibitor. So that also makes it a great medication, actually, because you don't have to look for drug interactions. So great for liver disease, great for if there's multiple drugs the patient is on. It's great because there is less drug interaction. Okay, I've never finished citalopram like that. Good to know. So that's it for citalopram. How about escitalopram? What's so special about escitalopram? So escitalopram is very similar to citalopram, but there is a change. It's an S enantiomer, so it's, there's a structural change. The advantage of escitalopram is that its antihistaminic property is six times less than that of citalopram, right? But it's still slightly sedating. It does have an antihistaminic property. So again, dose it in the evening. I always tell the patient, take it in the evening. If it causes insomnia, switch it to the morning. Again, take it with food. Steady state one week. You can increase the dose on a weekly basis. Cardiovascular effect, plus and minus. There is mixed data on it. But you want to be a little cautious, get an EKG done. Once you reach a dosage of like around 20 milligrams and then follow the EKG, the patient's the next EKG is normal. You don't have to worry. Plus, the patient doesn't have any cardiovascular risk factor. It should be good. There's no hypomagnesemia. There's no hypokalemia. There's no bradycardia. So, escitalopram, again, no drug interaction because it's a very mild cytochrome 2D6 inhibitor. Plus, like citalopram, you can use it in liver disease. So, citalopram and escitalopram both can be used in liver disease, no drug interaction. Study state one week, easy to titrate the dosage. So the problem I have with escitalopram, it has a very limited range. So it's 5 to 24 escitalopram. Why is that? Is it just more potent or why is it such a low range? So we don't know whether it's actually more potent, but if you look at the enantiomer, the S enantiomer is more potent than the RS, but we don't know that for sure. And most likely in the clinical trial, the doses that they used actually the 510 15, 20 was the most effective, but there are people who use up to 30 milligrams. So it totally depends upon what are you treating. Be very careful, actually, because it totally depends upon your pharmacoeconomics. If you're a poor 2C19 metabolizer or you're an extensive or ultra-rapid 2C19 metabolizer. So if you're extensive or ultra-rapid, then you'll have to use a higher dose of escitalopram to see the benefit. If you're a poor metabolizer, then you have to actually use a lower dosage, right? For example, if you look at a small subset of African-American and Asian population, they are poor 2C19 metabolizers. So in that population, you have to be a little careful, start low and go slow. And the escitalopram, escitalopram are metabolized by CYP2C19? That's both citalopram and escitalopram. All right. So let's talk about sertraline. So sertraline, again, a medication metabolized by 2C19. I just actually threw it there so that you can actually the three medications by 2C19. Sertraline is a great medication. This is one of the medications that I like. The reason being is that it's safe in patients with cardiovascular problems. QTC interval plus the studies that they did post-MI was with sertraline. It's safe in patients with the renal disease. You can give to patients with dialysis. And we spoke about it in one of our podcasts which I don't think so we have published yet, that it also prevents the post-dialysis hypotension. Don't ask me why. I do not know, bro. And uh, <laughs> plus, it can also be actually used in patients who are pregnant. It's very safe in pregnancy as well as breastfeeding. So a lot of advantage, but don't use it in liver disease because it undergoes post-pass metabolism, right? So sertraline is a pretty good choice, right? Plus, you don't have to worry about the drug interaction unless you go above 150. Then it becomes a moderate 2D6 inhibitor. Plus, the little bit of disadvantage of sertraline is it causes more nausea, vomiting, and headache as compared to other medication because it does have affinity for 5-HD3 receptors. It has a steady state of one month. 
So you have to actually do a very slow dose titration. And it is also the one of the only SSRI that is preferred in patients with ADHD. Because serotonergic medication can decrease the dopamine and therefore can affect the processing speed. But sertraline also has a dopaminergic effect to it. So it's considered to be one of the SSRI that you can prescribe to patients with a DHD without affecting the processing speed. And you can dose it in the evening, but you can also dose it in the morning if you want. If I didn't know better, I would think sertraline was buzzing you. So for sertraline, steady state of one month, metabolized by 2C19, at higher doses of 150, it's a 2D6 inhibitor, safe in cardiovascular, safe in renal patients, and preferred in patients with ADHD because it also has some dopaminergic properties too. Side effects, it's more likely to have the nausea, vomiting side effect because it has a infinity 45 HD3, and besides the inhibition of 2D6, that's pretty much central. And I'm guessing less sedated, right, because of the dopaminergic. Dose in the morning? You can dose, but some patients do feel a little tired on it. So majority of the time, like in my experience, I usually dose it in the evening and the mm -hmm. basic case, I cannot sleep. Then I say, hey, take it in the morning. Okay. Is that your normal go-to or the SSRIs in the evening? No. So the SSRIs like citalopram, escitalopram, sertraline, fluoxamine, and paroxetine. So all the SSRIs are dose in the evening except fluoxetine. And we'll get to blue oxygen in a while. And then I think I forgot to talk about it. Centrally, it's also good for the pregnant population. Good for breastfeeding. Let's see what we have next. Paroxetine. Paroxetine is a good SSRI, but you have to be a little careful when you're using paroxetine. First of all, because it has an anticholinergic side effect. So you have to be careful in patients with benign prostatic hypoplasia, with myasthenia gravis, patients who are delirious or have cognitive impairment, peptic ulcer disease. So all those things you have to be a little bit careful, but you can prescribe it. It has a steady state of about a month. So you have to wait four weeks because you increase before you increase the dose. Because if you do a quick increase, then you'll see the side effects when it reaches a steady state. Even though it has a short half-life, it has a long steady state. That's a great question. So don't quote me on this, but paroxetine inhibits its own metabolism, right? It's metabolized by 2D6. And it's also an inhibitor of 2D6. So it can cause an auto-inhibition increasing its own plasma level. That could be the reason why the study state is a month, right? So I basically, I'm a little careful, especially with any medication that auto-inhibits itself. Like paroxetine is one and fluoxetine is another one. So you have to be very careful increasing the dose. Wait, watch. Because otherwise, like you will basically just build up the dose of medication and you'll have severe anticholinergic side effects. Plus, it has a very safe QTC profile. In patients with QTC prolongation, the two SSRIs that you can safely use is paroxetine as well as sertraline. Always dose in the evening. You give paroxetine in the morning, the patient will be sleepy. And this is very common. Patients will go to primary care providers for depression. Majority of our patients go to a, go to a PCP at managed depression. And this prescribed paroxetine, they say once a day. Whenever you say once a day, patient will take it in the morning. And they're tired the entire day. So that's the easiest concert you're going to get miracle. Patient tired and sleepy during the daytime on paroxetine. Doc, what should I do? Switch it to the bedtime. Um, so that is actually about paroxetine. But you also keep an eye on the weight according to research data. With paroxetine, when you gain weight, you keep on gaining weight in susceptible patients. So you have to be careful actually with the weight gain. And then withdrawal. If you skip a dose, short half-life, you actually see severe withdrawal. 
right? And plus, it inhibits 2D6. So you have to be careful regarding the drug-drug interaction. Wow. And then also, it's one of the least favorite SSRIs for pregnancy, especially in the first trimester, because of its risk of causing cardiac malformation. But apparently, it's very good for breastfeeding because there's little percentage of it found in the breast milk but not great during the first trimester. So in summary, breaxin has acyclinergic properties. This is sedating, can cause weight, give it at night. It's a 2 d inhibitor, so there's a possibility it auto-induces itself, so starts low, goes slow, and then there is the withdrawal down titrates easily. But it's great for patients with cardiac issues. It has less QTC prolongation. One correction, actually, is that it inhibits 2D6, so it causes auto-innovation of 2D6. Yeah. Real quick, big highlights, Cetalopran, Cetalopran is for liver disease, less CYP drug interactions. Cetalopran has antique stomach properties, so maybe more sedating those at night. Brexitive anticholinergic, now using the first trimester for pregnancy. Safe for QTC prolongation, however. And Cetralin, our baby favorites out of the four. Negative issues might be more nausea generating, but same with cardiac as well. It's a moderate inhibitor of 2D6, especially at higher doses, preferring ADHD because it has some dopaminergic properties. And Brexitin and Citalopram, uh, they have a one month led to get to steady state. So both of them don't go up too fast. So we've talked about Citalopram, Citalopram, Cetraline, and Furoxetin. And do that. Four out of the six SSRIs. We're going to talk about the two other SSRIs with the SNRIs. And that is it for today in the Why is Psychiatry. Peace out, guys. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Our tireless team is already hard at work, cobbling together another potpourri of fascinating discussion for next week. So be sure to tune in. Visit our website and our podcast feed and let us know your thoughts on the episode. Subscribe so you don't miss our releases every Wednesday. Until next time, keep smiling, keep shining, and stay curious.